Well, Happy New Year. It is good to be back. What an honor it is to be the first to bring the Word to you in 2020. As someone told me earlier, you must be doing something right for them to continue to invite you back. Well, I don't know about that, but I sure am grateful to God to be here. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Ephesians chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. The passage will be on the screens behind me. Now we're beginning a brand new series, as Sergio pointed out, Spiritual War. And I have the privilege of introducing this series to us this morning. Now, before I begin, I want to tell you a little story, and it has to do with coaching basketball. A few months back, our oldest, Caleb, he had signed up for a Wheaton North feeder program because he's in eighth grade, and so all of these boys, they were trying out for this feeder program, and they ended up keeping three different teams. Well, Caleb, he made the third team, the problem was is that they didn't have a coach, and so they kept on emailing all the parents saying, hey, uh, if you want a coach, this would be great, because if we cannot find a coach, we'll have to dissolve this team. And so my wife told me about this email, and uh, she's like, do you want a coach? Now, I know what you're thinking. How, you, you play basketball? You're like five foot nothing. Uh, yes, I, I did play basketball in high school, despite my height deficiencies. And so my wife asked me, would you, would you want a coach? And I'm like, babe, I, I'm just, I really am. I, I, I'm really just too busy. I just, I, I just don't know if I could really do it with my you know, with my work at the Billy Graham Center, and, and then also if I'm going to be able to preach some at Wheaton Bible and Tri-Village, I, I just don't know if I'll have the time. And she's like, oh, okay, okay. Well, about a week passes by, and she gets this other email. Uh, this is the last call. If we cannot find a coach to coach this team, we will have to dissolve the team. And so my wife tells me about it. She's like, are you sure you don't want to coach? And I'm like, all right, my, my son, if, if I don't step up to coach, it looks like my son won't be able to play on this basketball team. And so I said, all right, I, I'll coach the team. And so I, I sent an email to the guy and I said, hey, I, I'll be glad to, to, to coach. Hopefully there will be some other parent that will help me, which there was, thank goodness, and so I signed up to be an eighth grade basketball coach. Now, I'm, I'm comfortable coaching eight-year-olds. Like, I'm comfortable with that. Eighth graders who some of them play middle school basketball, not so much. And so I remember the first practice we had, and I came to the team, and I sat down with them. I said, all right, so, so here, here it is. I mean, because I, I, I would say I'm comfortable at least speaking in front of people. So there's eighth graders. So I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to them. And so here, here we go. Here's our, here's our foundation for the year, guys. Let me, let me tell you the foundation. The foundation is that, that we are going to prepare you for ninth grade basketball. That, that's the foundation. And then I gave them uh, the, the, the preacher lingo, too. I said, now, here's the foundation of what I'm really looking for. I want you to be hungry. <laughs> I want you to be humble. I want you to hustle. I want you to be harmonious, meaning I want you to work good together. And then I want you to show honor. That's, what, that's the foundation that I'm going to start with. And that's how I want you to approach the game of basketball. So I want you to prepare for ninth grade basketball. And this is how I want you to do it. And then 
then we're going to continue to do the fundamentals, dribbling, passing, layup, shooting. So, so I, I had the foundation and I had the fundamentals. The, the problem was really the functionality. And so I brought my little clipboard that, that I use because in eighth grade basketball, it's not like eight-year-olds where eight-year-olds, you just teach them the fundamentals and you hope that they go to the right basket. And, and, and so they're like, they're like herding a bunch of cats. Like, so I've done that and I'm comfortable with that and that's cute. But this is eighth grade basketball. And so I'm drawing diagrams all over the board. This guy goes here, this guy goes here. The, you know. And so uh, it's so funny for the first couple of weeks, I mean, I'm watching YouTube videos on basketball plays. And I kept on telling Joni, what did you get me into? I do not have time to sit here and spend hours on end looking at YouTube for basketball plays. But see, what I needed to do was to have a strategy and game plan to implement for these eighth graders as they took the court. You say, Josh, why are you telling us all of this? Because that's exactly what Paul's going to do in Ephesians 6. You see, you could look at Ephesians as being broken down into three different areas. The first area, Paul is going to explain the foundation or the theology of salvation in Ephesians 1 through 3. And then in Ephesians 4, 5, and some of 6, he's going to talk about the formation of of our salvation, or the practical outworking of this theology that he has outlined. And so you'll see things like this at the very beginning of Ephesians. Believers, you've been chosen in Christ. You have been marked with the seal called the Holy Spirit. Christ has made you alive by grace through faith. You are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works. That it is in Christ that you are able to do immeasurable more than what you could imagine. So those are some, some the, uh, theologies about our salvation. And then he's going to move on. He's going to tell believers things like this. Live worthy of the calling that you have received. Make every effort to be unified. Equip people to do the work of the ministry. Put on your new self. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Be pure and kind and compassionate and wise. Uh, live out God's plan for the family and for your vocation. And so he has spent, again, half the time developing the theology or the theologies of salvation. He spent the other half describing the outworking of the theology of salvation. But then he's going to wrap it up by telling us how this can be possible. How to really flesh this out strategically and functionally. You see, it's not enough just to know the theology of salvation. It's not enough just to know the spiritual formation of the theology of salvation. You really need to know how does this really work in life? Like, how do we really make it work? How can we be kind and compassionate? How can we be unified? How can we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Like, we need to know. And so Paul, in verses 10 through 18 in this series, he's going to tell us the game plan. He's going to give us the strategic plan. He's going to give us the plays, if you will. And what a great word 
to start 2020 with other than how to be victorious in the Christian life. And so here's the main point that we're going to flesh out this morning. To live the victorious Christian life, one must follow the strategic plan of Christ. So it has a little rhythm to it. To live the victorious Christian life, one must follow the strategic plan of Christ. So say it with me, all right, on the count of three. One, two, three. To live the victorious Christian life, one must follow the strategic plan of Christ. Will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, everybody say finally. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your, everybody say it, stand against what? The devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to do what? Stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Let's pray. Jesus, as we unfold these verses, we pray that your Spirit would move in our hearts and in our minds. And as the word was spoken at the very beginning to give shape and formation to the created order, to bring it into existence, would the word go to work this morning giving shape and formation to our hearts and bring into existence the new creation that you are making through the gospel of King Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to look at the strategic plan of Christ by way of introduction. And to do so, we're going to look at the first four steps. Here we go. Step number one, live in God's strength. Live in God's strength. We see this in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty Power. So if you're going to live the Christian life, if you're going to take the theology of salvation and you're going to see it come to fruition in your life, you need to first and foremost live in God's strength. Notice it's His strength, not ours. Like we cannot live this life on our own and in our power. Like if you look at human beings, we are weak, we are fragile, we are frail, we are sinners by nature. So to live a victorious, godly life, there is no way we can do it with a sinful nature. That's why he's going to say, live in the Lord's strength and in His mighty power. Now, what kind of power does God have? Well, I'm glad that you asked. You, you can actually see what kind of power He has in Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 19, 
And, and, and here's what Paul writes. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. What kind of power does God have? Resurrection power. That means he can take something that is dead and bring it to life. Now, I don't know about you, but that is absolute omnipotence there. That this is incredible power that he can take something that is dead and he can bring it to life. I mean, just think we live in a culture where uh, we really want to try to keep people living. I mean, we have all kind of medical equipment, all kind of medicine because we don't want to die. And here's the, here's the stark reality that Paul paints is that God, even though we die, he can actually raise us to life, ultimate power. And that's the power that lives in you. And me. Now, I, I know that, that believers are well-meaning when they give advice like, you just need to try harder. You, you just need to do better. You just need to dig deep. You just need to believe in yourself. Like, I'll give you a, a good illustration. Parenting is extremely difficult. I, if any other parents agree with that? Like, uh, so uh, we have a 13, 11, and 8-year-old. The 8-year-old, he's still somewhat easy right now. The 13, 11-year-old, 8th grade, 6th grade, we're winging it. We're winging it according to the gospel is what, is what I tell people. And so when it comes to parenting, I have been very intentional about teaching my kids how evil and wicked they are. You're like, oh my gosh, really? Like I was telling my coworker a few months back, I remember when Ellie our 11-year-old, when she was like she was like six or seven, she did something, was really stubborn, hard-headed. And I looked at her, I said, Ellie Laxton, you have a wicked and evil heart. And it, uh, she's like, you really told that to your eight-year-old? And I, I'm like, yeah, because I, here, here's the thing. I want my children growing up realizing they need a savior, not how good they are. And, and I understand that, it, it, that this is a tension. Because I want to build them up, but I don't want to build them up so much to the point where they don't recognize they need a Savior. So when it comes to my children and them and their behavior, and if it's bad behavior, like when my 13-year-old does not want to share with the 8-year-old, when my 13-year-old continues to aggravate the snot out of my 8-year-old, when he's mean to his little brother and will not let him participate, I don't tell Caleb, hey, buddy, you just need to try harder. You need, you need to dig deep. You need to be more kind to your brother. I always tell him, Caleb Blackston, you need Jesus' help. Because you cannot be kinder. You cannot be more compassionate. You cannot be more generous on your own. You actually need the generosity. You need the compassion. You need the kindness of Jesus to fill your heart so that it can be enacted in your life. I'm preaching this morning. I want my kids to know that. I want them to know how great God is so that when they start seeing some improvement in their behavior, it's not because they did some type of self-help for a 13-year-old. They did some kind of surrender to the strength of Jesus in their life. That's why 2 Peter 
He's going to say, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. You cannot, I cannot, Tri-Village, you cannot live God's life on your own. So maybe some of you here this morning, you're trying to do your marriage in your own power. You're trying to parent in your own power. You're trying to deal with the loss in your own power. You're trying to deal with stress in your own power. You're trying to lead out in your business in your own power. You're trying to make decisions in your own power. You're trying to overcome a sin in your own power. See, see please do not miss this. Come here, come here really close. The same way you and I lived the Christian life is the same way you and I entered into the Christian life. Let me ask you this. Did you enter into the Christian life because of what you did? Because of your own power? No, you entered into the Christian life to say, hey, I am a sinner. I am separated from God. I have this nature and I want to surrender it to you. You are king. You are Lord. You are Savior. I'm yours. So the same way you entered into the Christian life is the same way you live out your Christian life by being strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. Because the gospel isn't you do, it's Christ did. That's the gospel. So live in God's strength. Step number one. Step number two. You guys all right? Say all right. All right. Number two. Clothe yourself with God's armor. Clothe yourself with God's armor. Now it's important to kind of keep in mind that these kind of build on one another. So Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he tells the believers part of their role in accessing or living in that power. So, hey, be strong in the Lord is, hey, you surrender to the Lord. Let the Lord live through you. But step number two is, hey, you, you got some responsibility here. You have to clothe yourself with God's armor. And so we see this in verse 11 at the first part. And we see, put on the full armor of God. So that, that word or the verb, put on, it literally means you do it. It's in the middle tense, meaning you yourself put on. So you have that responsibility. I have that responsibility. We have that responsibility to put on God's armor. Now, what I think Paul is doing here is that he's connecting back to an idea in chapter 4. We see in verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And then verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we have this responsibility to put off the old 
the old self, corrupted by our sinful nature, to put on the new self made available to us by Jesus. And now we have, guess what? We not only have a new self that we are to put on, but we have new clothes to put on as well. Now, I don't, now, I'm, I'm really, now ladies, um, I, I, I don't mean this in a very negative way at all, but I, I am wor- I'm worse than any woman in here when it comes to what am I going to wear. Like, I really wish I would have taken a picture this morning of how many clothes I had out and that I had put on. I'm like, I don't know, I don't like the way that looks. I don't, but hey, here's the good news. We don't have to kind of pick and choose our wardrobe. It, it's been given to us. We not only have a new self, but we have this responsibility to put on this armor. Now, what is armor meant for? Armor is meant for war. Now, I think that some of the ideas of the prosperity gospel has seeped into the life of American Christianity. And there's this idea that if you follow Christ, you will have your best life now. Now, now the thing about that is, is that some people will look at the best life now idea and they'll go, okay, well, I have my best comfort now, my best security now, my best health now, a life devoid of difficulty and struggle. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell, which we'll see in just a second. That is a scheme of the devil. You see, the Christian life is a life of war. Happy New Year. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't sign up for it. I understand, but you're part of it. That's why I like what C.S. Lewis said. He's like, um, I didn't go to Christianity for it to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port or alcohol would do that. If you want Christianity to make you really comfortable... Or if you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly would not recommend Christianity. Now, I'm sure, like if you if you are a, a non-believer, you you don't you don't believe in Jesus, and you're maybe checking this whole Christianity, this church thing out. You might even ask yourself, well, then why would anybody want to be part of Christianity? Why would anybody follow Jesus if it's a life? of war, if it's a life at war? I think that's a, I think that's a fair question. Here's, your, here, here's the answer. You were made for God. You were created in His image for a relationship. And your primary purpose for living is to know Him, is to glorify Him, and is to find your satisfaction in Him. That is the chief end of man. So I understand that, you know, it just doesn't feel right for for me to, in some sense, kind of join this war. But here's what I would also say. It's not only were you designed, not only is the chief end of humanity, the glory of God, and satisfaction only in Him. But the other reason why I would say that you ought to join into this war is because there is coming a day when King Jesus will come back according to Scripture. And there will only be two sides. There won't be a third side. There will not be a fourth side. There's only two sides. There's the victorious side, and that's King Jesus. He's already won. 
And there is the losing side, and that is the devil and his minions. Now, what the Bible teaches is this, is that when man sinned, we automatically joined the losing side. But the incredible news of the gospel is that King Jesus actually came down to the losing side, took our loss for us, took our sin upon himself so that he could bridge the gap so that we could join the winning side. So one of these days, you will either be on King Jesus' side at the very end or you will be on Satan's losing side. And here's the thing. I don't know about you. I've never met a human being that likes to lose. And if you don't like to lose, I would, I would really highly encourage you to join the winning team. Life's war. And it's a war that's already been won in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So you have the responsibility of putting on this armor. You need to understand in putting on this armor that you are at war. And then here, here's another key is that you need to make sure you put on all the pieces. It says full. Turn to your neighbor and say full. You can't be missing any pieces. Like belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. And we're going to be looking at those over the next several weeks. But keep this in mind. Missing pieces reveals your life's weaknesses. Missing pieces reveals your life's weaknesses. Because if you don't have the full armor of God on, you are not fully protected. So when I think about this whole idea of God's armor, do you know what story in the Bible I'm reminded of? And it's, it's a famous story. You, you, would, re, you would know it. 1 Samuel 17, anybody know what, what's in 1 Samuel 17? David and Goliath. You say, Josh, why do you, why do you think about that story? Well, just think about it. So you have this, this scrawny little boy who, who comes to a place where there are, are two sides, the Philistines and the people of God. And he's going, on, he's going there to take some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to his brother's. But while he's there, he sees this big, huge, honking warrior on the other side taunting the armies, the army of the living God. And he's like, this, this should not be. I mean, we have God, Yahweh. Do, do we not understand who Yahweh, God is? And so he starts talking like, man, somebody got to put a stop to Goliath. He can't keep running his mouth. Well, so, so Saul, King Saul, is actually going to let this, this, this young little teenage boy go up against this great warrior. And that's crazy. I don't know what he was drinking that day, but anybody in their right mind wouldn't put a little boy up against this. But he did. But before he did, guess what they tried to do? They tried to put Saul's armor on David. And so after they put Saul's armor on David, David was like, I can't really move. I'm not really used to this armor. I'll just go in who I am and who God has made me to be with my slingshot and five smooth stones. But you say, well, what was David's armor? Here's what was David's armor, and it's found in verse 45. Listen to these words. 
David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Now, just think about it. You're Goliath. Here's this little teenage boy saying he's going to cut off your head. And then here's the thing. How is he going to cut off his head? He's only coming with a slingshot. This very day, David keeps on. I mean, he, I mean I'm telling you, this, this sucker, he is bold. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine to the birds and the wild animals. And here, here's the other part. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's the armor. It's the name of Yahweh. And see, when you stand against the enemy in the name of Yahweh, knowing that you want Yahweh to be great, you want Yahweh, you want the Lord to be made known in all of the earth, there's this armor that you put on that is divine armor that's not natural armor. And see, in Paul, thousands of years later, he's going to even give us more details about this armor, how we can put on this armor and what that entails. So that's the second step. What's the third step? Glad you asked, because I want to give it to you. Number three, stand against God's enemy. Stand against God's enemy. So you're going to live in the strength of the Lord, letting Jesus live through you. You are going to put on the full armor of God, which we're going to flesh all of that out over the next several weeks. But just think about David and Goliath and what David put on that day. And the third step is you're going to stand against the enemy. Now, I know that we live in a day and age where fewer people believe in a literal devil. Like back in 2000. And not over a decade ago. Can you believe that? Barna did a study and found out that four out of ten Christians, that means on 40%, strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. And that's ten years ago. And we're becoming more progressive and more secular, even within the church. So let me say just a few things about God's enemy, Satan. Let me just say this. If you believe in a literal God, it wouldn't be hard for you to believe in a literal devil. Okay, this is just FYI. The second thing is, is that I do believe that the Bible teaches that the devil is real. That he is a created being. He was an angel who held a high place in God's presence. But because of his pride and wanting to take the place of God, he and a legion of angels were kicked out of heaven. You can read about that in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and then even Revelation 12. Now, I understand, again, part of the difficulty of believing in such things that you cannot physically see. But let me ask you this. Do you believe in the common cold? Do you believe in the common flu? And do you believe in strep throat? Yeah. Why? Because I've seen the symptoms. Yeah, now, if you, would take, if you would take those viruses and those bacteria and you would put them under the microscope, you could kind of see. But, but here's what, and I would just say this, the Bible is our microscope to help understand life as we know it. 
And so the same is true about the spiritual realm. You cannot see the devil or his demons, but you can see the very real effects that they reap on planet Earth. They are real. And that is why Paul, in wrapping up his letter, is exhorting believers to live in the strength of the Lord, put on God's armor, because there is a real enemy out there opposing you. And so we see this in the latter part of verse 11. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So put on the full armor of God. Why? Why do we put on the full armor of God? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Note, take your, everybody say it, stand. We are not to run away. We are not to fall back. We are not to surrender. We're not to wave the white flag. We're not to give in. We're not to regroup. We are to stand. Against whom? The devil and his schemes. Now, when I think about this idea of standing, I think of Matthew 16 where Jesus says, and I tell you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Do you realize that we are the offense? We are the one advancing something? Just think about it. Your life is a weapon in the hands of God to advance his mission on planet Earth. The gates of Hades will not prevail against you. That's why we even read in 1 Peter. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. But I don't want you to miss this, though, because Paul doesn't say stand against the devil. What does he say? Stand against the devil's schemes. Now, the word schemes is where we get our English word method. We have to stand against his schemes. Now, here's the thing we need to realize about the devil. He's not God. So, therefore, he's not omnipresent, nor is he omnipotent. So, he's not everywhere at once, and he's not all-powerful. So, what he has done is created schemes to advance his cause in the world. Now, what are Satan's schemes? Well, man, you're really on top of it this, this, this first Sunday of, of January 2020. Let me give you three places where you can go and you can really read about his schemes. Genesis 3, Job 1 and 2, and Matthew 4. There are other places, but these are really key passages to understanding the schemes of the devil. Genesis 3, Job 1 and 2, and Matthew 4. Now, let me just give you an overview of Satan's schemes from these Three places. Satan wants you to question God's goodness. So what he says to Eve, did God really say? Basically, he's wanting Eve to question the goodness of God. He's going to manipulate God's word, distorting the truth. God didn't really say that, Eve. He's going to tell lies that you would want to believe. You won't really die. I mean, okay, man, I won't really die if I eat this fruit. Man, this is awesome. He's going to keep you at an unhealthy place longer than you should be. Listen, when I look at Genesis 3, they should have left in the first sentence. But they're sticking around. They have become so distracted. Eve has become so distracted 
by her lust for the fruit. He's going to tempt you to be your own God. Hey, if you eat it, you'll be just like God. When you look at Job, he wants to see us suffer. Why does, why does Satan want to see us suffer? Because he believes this. That as long as you are prosperous, you don't, you don't mind worshiping God. But pain will prohibit you from worshiping God. That's why Job comes, uh, it comes to mind. Because Satan thinks, well, hey, hey, God, the only reason why he worships you, he's so righteous and godly, is because you've given him everything. You've blessed him. And then God allows Satan to take everything away from Job in Job chapter 1. But he still praises God. And then, Job, then, then Satan comes to God and is like, well, you need, to, you need to touch him. If you cause pain in his life, he'll curse you. And, and God allows Satan to do that. And so brings boils on Job from head to toe. And Job still will not curse God. You see, when it comes to pain and suffering, now I just want you to think about this. When it comes to Job 1 and 2, God allowed Satan, I want you to think about it, to bring the attacks by the Sabians on Job's oxen and servants. He allowed Satan to rain fire down from the heavens to burn up the sheep and servants. He allowed Satan to lead the attack of the Chaldeans that stole Job's camels. He allowed Satan the power to bring a tornadic wind that destroyed the house that where Jacob or where Job's children were in. And then he allowed Satan the power to bring about physical pain to Job's body. Now think about this. God allowed Satan to do all of this to cause pain and suffering in Job's life so that Job would curse God and die. Talk about the schemes of the devil. And then if you look at Matthew 4, he's going to want to get you to distrust God, to take matters in your own hand. Hey, Jesus, if you're really God and you're really hungry, take these stones, turn them to bread. Hey, God, hey, Jesus, if, you really, if God really is, is who you say he is, then if you, if you jump off the temple, then you'll, you'll put God to the test and he'll have to send his angels to make sure you don't die. Hey, Jesus... I'll give, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you would just fall down and worship me. So here, just take the shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. Warren Wearsby, he puts it this way. Satan will target your mind, your body, your will, your heart. His weapons are lies, suffering, pride, and accusation. It's the schemes. Now, like I said, he is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. That's why we see what we do in verse 12. For our struggle, our battle, our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood. Think about it. All of those schemes had nothing to do with flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly Realm. In other words, Satan has a host of demonic minions doing his schematic building. When I think about this, I think of the Avengers. I'm a big Marvel person, and uh, we got Disney Plus over the last month, and my wife, she's, she's, she's been binge-watching all of the Marvel movies. Now, now it's interesting. Do you, re you realize why they created S.H.I.E.L.D., don't, don't you? They, they created SHIELD, and it stands for Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement Logistics Division. That's a mouthful. But they created 
shield because they believed that there were other forces outside of planet Earth that posed a threat to humanity. And so if you kind of watch those Marvel movies, you, you'll see enemies like Red Skull, Loki, Ultron, Kree, the Scrolls, and then the ultimate Thanos, Endgame. I don't know if you've seen Endgame. But even in our culture, we have this idea, we've created this idea of other forces out there that threaten the human race. And the truth of the matter is there is another force out there that threatens the human race. And his name is called Satan, and he has this host of minions, rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly realm doing his bidding so that they can thwart the glory of God and lead the human race into loss and doom. But Paul, again, that is why he's writing at the very end to show how we can live victorious. Live in the Lord's strength. Put on the armor of God to stand against God's enemy and then the Last step is this. This is, this is good. Stick with God's plan. Stick with God's plan. We see this in verse 13. Therefore put on the full armor of God. So he goes back to it. Why? So that when the day of evil comes, and some scholars believe that there's this, there's this tension of this evil day, that you're in the evil day, but one day it will really come. There will be this heightened evil. And so therefore put on the full armor of God so that even in today's evilness and then into the future of that evil day, you can take ground by standing firm. And it does seem that Paul's focus is on believers standing their ground. Uh, Later on this afternoon, I will have a basketball game with my eighth graders. And uh, I will have my little clipboard, and we'll go over some things. But uh, here, I will go over these following points. Uh, defense, because defense wins championships. Offense might win games, but defense wins championships. We're going we're gonna to box out. We're going to cut and screen. Like you got to cut, and you got to make sure you hit your screens. I'm going to tell them this. And then we're going to create good shots. That's what we're going to do. You say, Josh, why do you say that? Because I say that every game. Stick with the plan. You, you, you know the plays. You know what we've been learning. Stick with the plan. Hey, so when it comes to your life, when it comes to living the victorious life, listen, we, we don't have to be fancy. We don't have to be uh, creative. Uh, we don't have to be ingenious when it comes to how do we live the victorious? It's really three simple things. Live in the Lord's strength, put on the full armor of God, and stand against the devil. That's it. Stick with the plan. I end with this, and as I read this, I'm going to ask the band to come up. Charles Wesley penned this hymn, and I thought it was very fitting. And here's what Charles Wesley, he, he says. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on, strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who in the strength of Jesus' trust is more than a conqueror. Stand then in his great might 
with all his strength endued, and take to arm you for the fight the armor of God. Leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole, that having all things done and all your conflicts past, you may overcome through Christ alone and stand complete at last. Why? <laughs> so to live the victorious Christian life, one must follow the strategic plan of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for, provi- for providing not only victory, but the strategic plan that we can live in victory. May we do that in 2020. Every single day, may we yield to you. May we yield to the Spirit of God to live through us. May we clothe ourselves every day, every minute, with the full armor of God so that we can stand. And may we stand fearless against an enemy that's defeated. Thank you, Jesus.